Well, welcome, everybody. So good to see you all and to worship with you. And thanks to the choir for that beautiful song this morning, one of my favorites. Uh, just so good to be in this space with you and to be at this service with you. And, you know, on this big day, it's a big day, right? It's the Lutheran Super Bowl, the Vikings and the Packers, right? And we'll uh, just pray for any of you Packer fans that you, you know, will be able to cope with the destruction that will be coming upon you. <laughs> Oh, there was a movie that was out a number of years ago. It's not worth seeing if you haven't seen it. But there was a scene that came to mind this last week as I was preparing for this message. It's a movie called We're the Millers. Kind of a comedy, cutesy little movie. And there's a scene in the movie where this young man comes to this house and meets a family because he wants to take their daughter out on a date. And you see right when he comes to the door that he's a little bit of a questionable character, partly just because he's covered in tattoos and he sits down and he shows the parents this new tattoo that he's gotten that he's super proud of. And it looks like this. No regrets. <laughs> now, I'll just tell you, if somebody like that comes to date my daughter in a couple of years, things are not going to go very well. <laughs> But I started to think, you know, there's got to be other pictures that are kind of along the same lines. So there you go. Never don't give up. So I guess give up. Too cool for school. This one's the best. Clearly, I have made some bad decisions. I mean, very self-aware, right? I think we all have regrets, if we're honest. We all have things that we carry with us. Now, some of them are small maybe kind of insignificant, but other times they're much bigger and they're harder to get over. There's some that don't stick with us very long and there's others, kind of like those pictures, that are very permanent and they seem to be with us our whole life. Now, in our culture, we love to celebrate individuality and how we're all unique and of course that's true, but I think this is one of the things that really brings us all together, something that every single one of us here has in common. We all have regrets, right? We all carry regrets throughout our life. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about three different categories that many of our regrets fall into, and they're up on this board. Now, some regrets we can call regrets of action, and those are those things that we proactively did or said or thought or a combination of all of the above. You know, we had a, an interaction with someone, and we weren't thinking, and we said some really mean words to them. Or maybe one time we were frustrated about something, and so we typed an email, and we used as big as words as we could, and we were furious, and we sent it off, and we destroyed a relationship. There's those regrets that we can look back on, and they're really because of the action that we took. Now, there's also some regrets that we would call the regrets of inaction, and it's precisely what we, we pray about in the brief order of confession when we say there's some things that we leave undone, right? These are the missed opportunities that we have. There's maybe a time in your life when you had an opportunity to speak life, to speak love into someone's life, and for whatever reason, you didn't, and now you regret it. Maybe you had one more conversation with a parent before they passed away and you didn't take that opportunity to really tell them how you feel about them. Maybe you saw someone getting picked on at school or someone sitting alone at lunch 
and you knew the right thing to do, but you, for whatever reason, decided not to follow through. And so we all, I think, at times have these regrets of inaction when we didn't step up and do what we're called to do. Well, then there's one more category, which we call the regrets of reaction. Now, this all starts with things that are done to us that are not under our control. Maybe someone treats us harshly. Maybe we grew up in a home where we didn't experience love. Maybe someone else uh, decided to cast us aside and kind of sacrificed our relationship. Now, when we experience some of these negative things that happen to us from the outside, there are times that we react in a regrettable way, in a negative way. Sometimes it's the story of addiction. It's a way that we cope with what is done to us. Now, not every addiction falls into this category, but many do. Oftentimes it's the story of abuse. There's more tendency for someone to abuse another person when they've experienced abuse themselves. So sometimes we have these regrets of reaction. Now what happens oftentimes when we start to carry these regrets with us, sometimes we carry them for decades, 20, 30, 40, 50 years even. We get stuck. And it's kind of like having a replay in our head. A little remote control and we hit rewind and we replay that regret again and again. And can you think about a regret in your life, an interaction that you had, that you can still picture exactly the way it happens? You can remember where you were, where you were standing, what you were wearing. You can remember where everybody else was. You can remember every word that was said in that moment. You just replay it again and again. Now, what we get stuck in is called the sorry cycle. It's where we replay the regret, and then we long for it to be different. And so we replay the situation and we think, if I only had a time machine, if I could only hit rewind again and go back 10, 20, 30 plus years into the past, if I could only say the right thing, if I could only hold my tongue, if I could only have not sent that email, then things would be different and I wouldn't be experiencing this pain. And so we get stuck. And psychologists talk about this as being the cycle of rumination. Now, the good news for each one of us and the good news of the gospel is that we can break free of this cycle, that we can live beyond our regrets through the power of the gospel because of what Jesus offers to us. And so that's really what this series is all about. It's looking at how we can move beyond our regrets and live the life that God intends for us. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about one big idea, and that idea is this. We can actually learn to love our regrets when we see them not as a finish line, but as a starting point. You know, all too often, we have something negative happen in our life, and we figure, that's it. I'm going to live with this the rest of my life. You know, it's my cross to bear. I'm going to experience pain all of my living days because of how I chose to respond or because of what I did to someone else. But what we talked about last, last week as we talked about the story of Peter is that because of Jesus' grace and what he did on the cross, we can actually move beyond our regret. And it can launch us into a better future where we can minister to others, we can bring hope to others. And because of what God can do in us, 
we can actually learn to love those regrets. The good news of Jesus is he can take even the worst things and he can bring healing and he can bring redemption and he can actually use them for good. Well, today, I want to give you the big idea in case, you know, you want to daydream about the football game or you're thinking about brunch or you want to take a little nap. So I'm going to give it to you right now. This is what the big idea of this morning is. The first step in finding freedom is recognizing our regrets. Recognizing our regrets is the first step in finding freedom. Now, you might say, well, that's so basic. I could have come up with this on my own. I mean, like, tell me something new. But I think what we're going to see is that this might be one of the most difficult steps in breaking out of the cycle and moving beyond our regrets. And then if you come back next week, which I hope you do, we're going to talk about releasing our regrets. And then we're going to talk about redeeming our regrets. And then finally, the last week of the series, we're going to talk about living beyond our regrets. So you're invited, come back each week, bring a friend with you, because I think God has something he wants to do in your life. So today, we're going to talk about recognizing our regrets, and I have just two points. Now, I realize I'm a preacher, and I'm supposed to have three points, but just, you know, don't say I don't ever do anything for you. I'm going to shorten it up a little bit, and two points. And in fact, it's going to be one thing not to do, and it's going to be one thing to do. So first, don't hide from your regrets. You know, our first reaction when we experience sin, when we experience brokenness, when we experience regret, it's to try to hide it from others, to try to hide it even from ourselves and to hide it from God. And you know what? This was the first inclination of Adam and Eve back in the book of Genesis When they first disobeyed God, when they sinned against him, their first inclination was to try to hide from him. You know, they went off into the bushes and God was coming to walk in the garden and they figured, you know, if we just don't make eye contact, maybe he won't realize what we've done. And you know what? This many thousands of years later, we have the same inclination. We tend to want to hide from our sin and our brokenness, and our regret. But here's the thing, church. When we try to bury our regrets, they're not dead. In fact, they all too often come back in an even more powerful way. Now, it got me thinking of something I think we've probably all tried to do before. Taking a beach ball, something that floats, and tried to sink it underwater. Have you ever tried to do that before? You're floating around in a swimming pool, and, you know, it's kind of fun to go below the surface. I mean, I watch my kids do this all the time. Maybe you put all your body weight on it, and you lean on it, and you can get it underwater. But what's its natural state? It always wants to come to the surface, right? It always wants to pop back up. Now, sometimes, if you're really committed, you might be able to leave it underwater for, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. But eventually, it's going to work its way back to the surface. And I think the same thing is true for our regrets. What we first want to do is we want to deny that anything's happened. It's not that big a deal. No one needs to know. I'm going to hold it under the surface. 
I'm going to keep it down deep and no one's going to even know what happened. But then at just the wrong time, usually, what happens, it pops back up, right? It takes a whole lot of energy. It takes a whole lot of effort to keep the ball below the surface. And so if we have something go wrong in a relationship, if we say something we shouldn't have said to someone, if we behave in an immature way, we can maybe try to hold it below the surface for a while, but once that energy and that effort gets to be too much, it's going to pop back to the surface, and we're going to have to deal with it, maybe with even more pain than it would have been originally. Can you think of those things in your life that you've tried to hold below the surface. Maybe today you're expending a whole lot of energy and effort trying to hide your regrets from everyone else. Now, I think there are a lot of different ways we try to hide our regrets. Sometimes we just try to deny it. You know, someone else comes into our life and we're like, there's nothing to see here. No, nothing happened. It wasn't that big a deal. We don't need to talk about it. I mean, look at how happy and successful and put together I am. Let's just talk about the positive things. We don't need to look over there below the surface. And then there's those times we try to use distraction. You know, we just try to keep ourselves so busy that we don't have time to dwell on our regrets. Or we try to have so much success and so many accolades and so much recognition that other people will be distracted from those regrets that we carry with us. Or sometimes we just try to suppress them. And if we can just pile enough layers on top of our regrets, well, we can somehow keep them below the surface. But you know what, church? That beach ball, it's going to pop back one day. It's always going to try to work its way back to the surface. And so what I want to do this morning is to focus in on a story that many of you are familiar with. And it's from the book of 2 Samuel it's the story of King David. Now, King David was an amazing man, right? He, at, at this point in the story, in the middle of 2 Samuel, he is one of the most famous people on the entire planet. He started as a humble shepherd boy, and he was anointed to be the king of Israel. And then he went on to defeat Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, and his notoriety grew People in other countries had heard about David, and they made comic books about him, and there were miniseries about him, and video games about him. He was probably the biggest celebrity on earth. And David was king over Israel during a time of stability and strength, and he was a battle hero, and people loved David. And now that he's become this powerful king, he's comfortable and he seems invincible. And it seems like no one can touch him, which oftentimes is a recipe for disaster. And so I want you to look at just one verse in 2 Samuel chapter 11, because this one verse says so much about what's going on in, Sam, in David's life. It says, in the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites, and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And you might say, well, 
What does that really tell us? Just a bunch of big names. But it says something really important about David's heart, about his character, and what's going on in his life. Because you see, David, first off, is in the wrong place. See, an honorable, responsible king would always go off to battle with the rest of his soldiers. He would never, ever leave them to go and fight alone. And that's why it says at the time when kings, I mean, everybody knew this, kings go with their army in the spring. The honorable, responsible thing to do. And so something's going on. It's a red flag in David's life. Now, secondly, what we can tell just from this verse is that David is isolated. All of his advisors, his friends, the people that he trusts are off in battle. There's no one left to advise him, to tell him, David, you know, watch your behavior. There's no one there to hold him accountable. Everyone else has left. And so here's David not acting like a king, not accountable, and isolated. And so one evening, David, who's now about 50 years old, which means he should be beyond his party days, right? He goes out on his deck. Maybe he's going to grill. And he goes out and he sees a woman bathing across the way. Now David, being king, always gets whatever he wants. So he sends one of his servants to go find out who this woman is. He wants her phone number. Maybe send her a text. So he sends his advisor. The advisor comes back and says, it's Bathsheba. Now, when you read the story, you might figure that David has never met her before. You know, it's kind of this new relationship. But that's not true at all. Bathsheba's grandfather is one of David's most trusted advisors. She's married to a man named Uriah who fought side by side with David. He's one of his soldier friends. Uriah bled with David in order for David to become king. And so Bathsheba is not outside his realm of relationships. He knows exactly who she is. He knows her story. But David's lack of accountability and his isolation messes with his judgment so he sends for her, and it's not just an innocent encounter. He doesn't want to just have a nice conversation, maybe a glass of wine. He ends up spending the night with her because a king always gets what a king wants. Now, imagine the regret that he must have felt the next morning. I mean, he knew that he didn't make a good choice. He knew that he had been unfaithful. He hadn't honored God. He had an opportunity at that moment to recognize his regret, to deal with it up front. But instead, he decided to hold it under the surface. He figured, I'm powerful. I can do what I want. No one else even needs to know that this happened. But then, like so often happens, the ball comes right back up to the surface because Bathsheba sends word to David and says, I'm pregnant. What am I supposed to do now? Suddenly, David's regret has grown. He hasn't dealt with the problem. It's become bigger. And so what is he going to do next? Again, he could recognize his regret. He has a choice. 
But instead, he digs deeper. And what he does is he sends for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, out on the battlefield. Says, come home. I've got something to tell you. So Uriah comes, and they have dinner together, and he's, he says, you know, Uriah, since you're home on this little vacation, why don't you go visit your wife tonight? You know, enjoy your company. So they go off to, to sleep, and the next morning, David finds out that Uriah went to sleep by the city gate. He didn't go home at all, which might sound weird, but that's the honorable thing to do. You see, a committed soldier, a commander over the army, would never go home when the rest of his soldiers were still on the battlefield. David's getting nervous. He's trying to keep the ball below the surface. He's kind of ups the ante. He says, come back for dinner tonight. You know, we'll have some nice ribs and we'll hang out. And he gets Uriah drunk. He says, all right, Uriah, now why don't you go home, spend some time with your wife. The next morning, David finds out that again Uriah went to the city gate, and he spent the night there. Now David is getting frantic. All this energy, all this effort to keep the ball below the surface, and he says, all right, drastic measures. He writes a letter, he seals it, he gives it to Uriah and says, bring this to your commander on the battlefield. And what Uriah doesn't know is he's bringing his death warrant it's instructions for his commander to put Uriah at the front of the line and at just the right time have everybody fade back so that Uriah's left alone and he's killed in battle. And it's exactly what happens because kings get what kings want. And now David figures that he's managed his problem. His regret doesn't need to be known by anybody else. He takes Bathsheba into his home. She becomes his wife. And then we get to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, we heard the story in, our, gospel, or in our, um, our first reading. There's an important character that shows up named Nathan. And Nathan's a prophet, which means he's a spokesperson for God. And he tells this story, kind of this funny story, about a poor man with this beloved little lamb and this rich man who comes and barbecues the lamb. And David is outraged. He's like, how could this happen? We should kill this guy. And all Nathan has to say in response is one sentence. He says, you are that man. And David thought he had the beach ball so deep down underwater that no one would ever see it again. And suddenly it has come right to the surface. Now David had another choice. He could have had Nathan killed on the spot. Could have done it easily. He's done it before. He could have acted all offended. He could have tried to rationalize. He could have tried to deny it. But in that moment, he chose to do something different. He decided to let go of the beach ball. And he chose to move forward with a powerful word. And it has just as much power today as it did then. And that word is confession. In verse 13, it says, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David chose to recognize his regret, which is the very first step towards finding freedom. Now, of course, there were still consequences, and there were hurts, and there was pain, and there was damage that was done. And that's the reality of sin. When we sin against God, there is going to be consequences. But God is still working. 
and he begins to work an amazing way in David's life. And the amazing thing, if you continue to read on about David, is he is still described as a man after God's own heart. Isn't that amazing? A man after God's own heart, after all of these wicked things that he has done, after all the ways he's tried to suppress his regrets, adultery, murder, lying, cheating, stealing. David is still a man after God's own heart, not because of what he's done, but because of what God is able to do in him. Now, if you fast forward in the Bible to the book of Hebrews, there's a part of Hebrews that's called God's Hall of Faith. It's some of the pinnacles of faith throughout the Bible. And guess what? If you read through the Hall of Faith, whose name is included there? David. And there's no asterisk. There's no footnote. It doesn't say, yeah, but he was a bonehead. He made some really bad decisions. Don't forget that. No asterisk. No footnote. David's a man after God's own heart. He's part of the hall of faith because of God's power of healing, forgiveness, and grace. You see, this was the real turning point in David's life. It's when he owned his sin. It's when he confessed his sin. He ended up writing a powerful psalm. You you quoted some of it earlier. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Next week, that's where we're going to camp out. We're going to look at that psalm in depth. It talks about the process of releasing our regret and our sin. With God's help, David didn't let his regret and his bad choices define his life. With God's help, David didn't let his regret and his bad choices define his life. Number two, do face your regrets head on. Do face your regrets head on. The reality is we have an enemy who wants to keep us pushing our regrets below the surface. He wants us to keep every secret we can. He gives us the illusion that we can somehow hide our flaws. We can hide our regrets from everyone else, from ourselves, and from God. But what that does is it holds us back from what God intends for our life. Because anytime you have unconfessed sin, anytime you hold regrets down below the surface, it creates a huge gap between us and God. Now, we know this to be true in any relationship, right? When we have unconfessed sin, when we are offended or offend someone else, and it's not dealt with, when there is no forgiveness, that relationship becomes fractured. There's a gap that's created. That chasm continues to grow if we don't deal with it. It can be a chasm between spouses, between parent and child, between friends, between coworkers, really in any relationship we're in. Now, if you're here today, and you feel like God is a million miles away, the question I would have you ask is, when is the last time you came clean with God? When is the last time that you were truly honest with God about what's going on in your life? 
Now, if you're ready to face your regrets head on, it means getting honest. First of all, it's getting honest with yourself. It's no longer being in denial. No, this isn't that big a deal. I don't have to really deal with this. You need to stop trying to minimize, rationalize, or deny what's happened. And then secondly, you need to get honest with God. I mean, let's be clear, God is not going to be surprised, right? He's not going to be like, you did what? No, he knows exactly what you've done or what you've said or what you wrote. But God is waiting for you to come to him. He doesn't force you to do anything you don't want to do. And so confession becomes the means, the process through which we recognize our sins. We own them and we bring them to God and ask for his help. And he begins to mend the gap that we've created in our relationship. Now, last week, we talked about in depth the story of Peter and how Peter denied Jesus, and then Jesus brought restoration into Peter's life. And if you remember Peter's story, then his words in 1 Peter chapter 5 are even that much more powerful. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God. Why? Because he cares about you. Now, I think we could add to that list, give all your worries and cares and regrets to God because he cares for you. It starts with getting over yourself. Get past your pride. He says, humble yourself. I mean, this is Peter, right? He always had a pride issue going on. We need to humble ourselves and then get honest with God because that's how we start to receive his grace and forgiveness. It's the start of God closing that gap that we've created. And then finally, we need to get honest with others. When we are honest with others, it brings amazing hope and freedom. When we let other people in to our life, then our secrets lose their power. And you start to realize you're not the only one dealing with things like this. In fact, other people have walked the same path and they can help you, they can encourage you, they can support you. That's why the Bible says, confess your sins to each other. Not just some random person, but people that we have a relationship with. Be honest about what's going on in your life so we can support each other. Now, sometimes this might mean letting someone be Nathan to you. Someone who might come in and say, hey, I see this going on in your life and you need to deal with it. And it also means we need to stay in community. We can't do life alone. We're better together. Join a group, join a study, find a way to serve. We need community. It's the best way that we can support each other to start over and find freedom in Christ. Now, we can't change the past, but we can choose a better future. You can't change what you did or what you said or what you sent to someone else, but you can choose to move forward in a healthy and a better way. Don't hide your regret. Recognize it. 
and confess it to God. And then watch what he'll do in your life. Now in closing, we have an invitation, an opportunity for you. Hopefully in your bulletin, on your note sheet, you have a post-it note. And no, today's service was not sponsored by 3M. It's not an advertisement. But what we want to invite you to do is to write down one of, one of your regrets. When you heard the topic last week or today, what is one regret that started to come to the surface? God has started to do something in your heart. What is a regret that you're still carrying with you today? And I want to invite you to write it down. You don't have to be specific. No one else needs to know. You could write one word. You could draw a picture or a symbol. Don't draw somebody else's picture. But something that's meaningful to you about a regret that you're willing to recognize today, that you want God to come in and start to deal with. And then what we're going to invite you to do is after the service, when you come forward for communion or as you leave the worship center, put your regret on one of the pallets. There's one on this side, one on that side, and there's also one right out in the gathering area. Be willing to recognize your regret. Be willing to put it up front. Then come back next week, and we have a very powerful illustration of what God wants to do in your life. Will you pray with me?